And we're back. We're back. Yes, sir. Derek, how's your week, man? Uh, my week has been fairly busy. Sweet. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what did you, what you end up doing for the fourth, Derek? Oh. Because <laughs> you were supposed to be out there with the fireworks. No, it was really hot, and I, I was really tired, and I didn't want to go outside in the heat. So what I did is I... Do you really want me to say what I did? Just say what you did. Okay. People need to know what theologians do on their 4th of Julys. So I uh, stayed home, studied, and read 10 pro-slavery sermons from the American South, yes. um, the 1840s <laughs> to the early 1860s. Um, and it was not a pretty thing, but I really wanted to understand how things can go wrong, how people use the Bible, um, how... Yeah, there's just a lot, and I don't want to talk more about that. But That it's, sounds good. It, there's a lot of important lessons to learn from that. Okay, got you. So that's what Derek did. Okay, on the 4th, I just... 4th is one of the highest earning days of the year for Uber, so I was out pretty much all night just carting people between Newberry Street and either Somerville or Medford, and those drives were like four times as far as surge goes. So wow. I had to be out there, man. I It's the only night of the year I'll probably be out past midnight, and it was so worth it. So, Now, were they mostly people who didn't want to take the tea or the tea was too crowded? Yeah, because, okay. you know, after 9 o'clock on holidays like that, the tea is free. So you can pretty much get to anywhere you need to go on the tea. But it was also, like you said, super crowded. And there's still, like, practically no traffic in the city. Like, no one was trying to drive in the city during the 4th. Plus, Storo Drive and all those other main thoroughfares were closed down. So right. uh, if you were going to get out the city, you either had to call an Uber or take the T and be on the train with all those people. So, right. yeah, it was, uh, it was not a pretty sight, and I got to capitalize on it. So I'm very happy with that. That's good. <laughs> it's very good. All right. So in terms of news this week, um, with it being the 4th of July, there are a couple of things I want to check in with, but uh, we can save those for a little bit later. Let's just talk about these standalones. I thought it'd be fun to talk about... Uh, Start with Lil Nas X. Yes. Or as Derek calls him, Lil Nas X. Lil Nas the 10th. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. How am I supposed to know how to pronounce something if I've only read it and never heard it? Yeah. Derek's only read it and never heard it. Okay. Um, so, yeah, Derek, I was, uh, I was curious to know what you wanted to uh, talk about with regard to Lil Nas X. Because, you know, he, I guess the big story this week was that he came out of the closet and that's pretty significant, seeing as how we don't really have any out gay men in hip hop. Like that's right. a like that's a thing. We have maybe Frank Ocean, if you want to call him hip hop, but he's more of a kind of alt R and B guy. But point being is there aren't a lot of out black men, especially in hip hop, and that's mm -hmm. uh, pretty significant. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to acknowledge or yeah, breathe into that? I wanted to to uh, acknowledge uh, some of us gay white men have our particular heroes like Neil Patrick Harris but oh doogie yes yes and all these other like cute young white gay men but that's not the extent of the LGBTQ world we need to to lift up everyone and if we're gonna have uh heroes that are celebrities they can't all be white um they we need to have we need to to acknowledge and lift up everyone and part of the part of the challenges for him, I guess, uh, coming out, I'm I'm wondering if the people who liked him and like 
loved listening to Old Town Road. That's what it's, that was called. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it's called. Yes. Uh, are they all going to still like him uh, afterward? Are they going to still be fans? Are they, you know, this is a this is a big deal, and I think it's something that we need to to not say. Oh, you know, gay black men are just for other gay black men uh-huh. to uh, to be heroes. I'm like, no, everyone. Um, Everyone needs to be appreciative and and recognize that queer people of color are fully part of our community. They're not just extra. Yeah. And they're not just uh, there for people who look like them. We've got to uh, to acknowledge them. Okay. I will say. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just gonna say that there is uh, something encouraging about this story. Right. And um, first of all, the majority of Lil Nas X's fans are kids. Like Lil Nas X came to prominence by um, through TikTok, that little music app where you know kids make. I, I don't know if you can call them vines, but they're these little videos you can mm-hmm. pair with music. Like that's how the song came to prominence initially. And uh, the kids certainly don't seem to care that Lil Nas X is gay, which is you know great. You know the younger the kids are, the mm-hmm. more accepting they tend to be of of this kind of thing so that's one thing that's encouraging second encouraging thing was a story i saw about Lil nas x just last night uh, apparently Lil nas x was on tv on a bbc news channel mm-hmm. and uh, the story about Lil nas x was just how he after his interview finished he walked yeah, across i saw the- that <laughs> <laughs> that's funny <laughs> it was so hilarious but like this just goes to show you that the extent to which uh little nas x's sexuality matters like yeah obviously it matters but to the extent to we were just able to go past that so quickly you know what i'm saying to this other story that highlights this other part of little nas x that we love so much his uh his folksy i've never been here before like attitude just it's it was such an adorable moment and these are still things we can highlight about little nas x and uh, juxtaposed next to this other big news story about him coming out the fact that people are not stuck on his sexuality mm-hmm. is pretty encouraging to me because you know we just moved on from that to another story about this other aspect of Lil Nas X's personality that was already kind of his brand and uh, and things are still good so I'm encouraged by that but I'm also you know we've talked about this already but just encourage that he is an out and proud you know yeah. black man in hip hop which we have not really had like ever yeah you know what I'm saying yeah this is this is real uh and that reminds me of sort of my experience as a gay man in the church. A lot of people think that that might be the most interesting thing about me, and it's really not. It's, it really is not. It's not. The Derek most is inter- such an interesting person, y'all. And and my proof for this is I know other gay men in the church, and they're not that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, cold some blooded, cold blooded. There's like a lot of other pursuits that I have, interests, and research that actually. Um, I think in in some ways, I hate to say this, but the Western gay identity is a product of homophobia. Oh, absolutely. Because we, you know, if we never had to come out, if we never were closeted, if we never had to fight these fights, we probably wouldn't even have a name for what it is mm. that we are and, and, this, and this particular queer identity. And this is a reaction to... Uh, to that to all of the oppression and and misunderstanding and marginalization and so there's a sense in which even my identity as a gay person is a reaction to and dependent on um the surrounding homophobia Mm, absolutely i think it really speaks to um 
And, you know, I know that black people definitely know a thing or two about this as well. A big part of our identity is, you know, the things that were born out of that oppression. Hip hop being yeah. one of those things. Like we wouldn't have soul food without that oppression. Right. Like, soul food is literally the parts of the animal that white people wouldn't eat. Like yeah. that's what that's what chitlins is. <laughs> that is what all this other stuff that we cook so well and taste so good, but it's so bad for you is it's those parts of the pig or those parts of the cow white people wouldn't eat. And, you know, hip hop, it's all that music or created by those means of people without means, you know, beatboxing right. became a huge part of hip hop mm -hmm. because you couldn't afford instruments. Uh, street dancing became a huge part of hip hop because we couldn't go into the schools and we didn't have much to work with other than, you know, what what we had. So yeah. a big part of our identities is built on making the best with what we have. So that's, that's one parallel I see between mm -hmm. uh, the gay community and the black community is such a big part of our, for lack of a better word, brands is making the best of what we got. Yeah. Yeah. So that is Lil Nas X. And uh, Derek, do you want to talk about that uh, that protest you went through this yes. week? Yes. So here in Boston, there was a major, major protest on Tuesday. Um, so we started out at the Holocaust, and this was organized primarily by Jews and uh, immigrants. And uh, many of them stood up with uh, and spoke. So there was like an hour and a half program first. We, we heard from some immigrants. We heard from uh, many of our Jewish friends who said, you know, my... Uh, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, and I'm here because, A, we should never let this happen here in this country, and B, if my grandparents hadn't had a refuge to go to, and uh, they wouldn't have survived. And so it's about America both not being uh, awful and welcoming those who are in need and mm. in danger elsewhere. So it's preventing danger here um, and elsewhere. And I and it was just very moving. I was I was uh, I can't say I was happy to be there, but I felt a, a, a major spirit of this is actual uh, sacred work. I wore my temple clothing, um, not the ceremonial clothing, but just a white pants, shirt, and tie, mm -hmm. um, because this is this is really sacred work. And um, I I think I was the only Latter Day Saint there that I knew of. My, my hope is that that there were others I just didn't see them mm -hmm. I'm wondering why weren't we there uh, I uh, I'm wondering like why why wouldn't we be there if we are are the true and living church and we have a living prophet who has told us to we've we've got our general authorities telling us to stand on the side of refugees to to keep families together all these other things so it's not like oh that the people that you know in Salt Lake are behind I think they're actually ahead a lot of a lot of uh, a, a lot of people in our church. I just want to read something from, from the, uh, from the prophet Amos. Okay. That really connects with this, because part of what I was doing is like I was there because my temple work in the temple and my two-hour block on Sunday I really think are worthless if I don't actually live out Christ's love and justice in the streets. And here's my. Uh, and this is actually from the English Standard Version. I have this very interesting Bible. It's interleaved. There's a blank page in between every page of the Bible so that I can put notes in it. It's like a study journal Bible. Yes. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's really cool. So I'm going to uh, turn to Amos. This is Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. 
And this is God speaking through the prophet. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So these, these songs and these offerings were their temple worship uh, back when the Jerusalem temple was in existence. And so he's, the Lord is basically saying, look, if you aren't living justly in public and having a, a torrent of amazing uh, justice and righteousness and infusing your whole world, I don't even want your temple work. Mm. That's literally what I think. There's so many people in our church that have this this idea that oh, the most important work we can do in the temple, and I'm not minimizing that. That is right. important. It's important work. But if you do it without doing the other stuff, that's hypocrisy. Because mm. the whole point of what's in the temple is to to teach us to become better people, to live in a world where we take care of each other. We make these promises in the temple, and if we leave them at the door of the temple, that doesn't do anyone any good. Mm. Um, and so I was there. Um, I should have worn a pink triangle. Uh, you know about the pink triangle, right? Yeah, pink yeah. triangle. That's what they put on. Uh, That's what they put on my people in the yeah. Nazi concentration camps. And there's there were just so many. In, uh, and 18, uh, uh, 18 of the protesters were arrested. I was 10 feet away from those who were arrested. Mm. Um, and the... The district attorney Rachel Rollins declined to prosecute them, okay. which I think is really good. Like, Very good. She's like she's she's a real, she's good, um, but but it but there's a there's a thing just to, to say like what what really bugged me. So the, oh I forgot to say we started out at the Holocaust Memorial that's downtown Boston, and we walked 2.7 miles to the South Bay Correction Facility, which is used by ICE to hold some of their their uh, detainees and uh, what was what really bugged me was the look on the Suffolk County Sheriff's people who mm. were who were there the, the cops were lining and trying to prevent us uh, from from going in which we didn't go in mm -hmm. but they looked not you know how you know how we, we read in Alma that wickedness never was happiness they yeah. did not look happy mm. they um, they were cooperating with with a very grave evil, in mm. my opinion, and uh, it well, and they're doing their job right. But so many of the greatest evils in the world are done by those who are just doing their job. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and it was it was tough to see them not even care. I could get like you having to do your job, but at least looking like like you have some sympathy for what's going on. But looking they like, didn't. Yeah, they didn't, and they made it, and it. Uh, and if if we all do our part, we can prevent some major challenges. And and part of the other thing is people die in our American people have died in our American concentration camps. This isn't mm -hmm. like oh the deaths are going to come eventually. Yeah, like many deaths in in these in concentration camps throughout you know uh, the world, not just the Nazis, happen because of. Uh, of unsanitary, unhealthy conditions, overcrowding, all these other things. And this is a real human rights issue that no matter where you are on the political spectrum, 
you should at least be able to stand up for not caging kids and and letting people die yeah. when we don't have to. Yeah. Um, any, I don't want to talk too much about this. Any other questions you had for me about it? No, no. Okay. Like you already said the things I want to say about it. You had a couple of bars in there, but I really just want to re-echo that point that, yeah, the work that we do at church and at the temples is sacred work, necessary work, but if that doesn't translate into what we do in these streets for our brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. then, then they're in vain. And the, the question I had is why weren't we there? Why weren't we there? Why weren't we there? Other Latter-day Saints. Because we are a refugee people. Like when we mm-hmm. were kicked out of Missouri, Missouri and, we had to yeah. go to Quincy. And the people of, of Quincy, Illinois, let us in mm-hmm. and helped us. And if, if that had not happened, thousands of us would have would have, would have have probably perished. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we know it's what it's like to be migrants yeah, and multiple times over. From that. Um, we of all churches in the U.S., uh, plus, we're we're actually a lot of us act, are immigrants, mm. uh, recent nineteenth century immigrants who came to Utah um, as as converts from Europe. And I'm like, we have an immigrant heritage, and basically all of the scriptures. Even if you look at Lehi's journey, mm. he basically was a refugee too. Yeah. He and his family left Jerusalem because it was unsafe. Especially after you kill Laban, you're not safe there anymore. So, yep. yep. Uh, like, how can people? came to this country and they were undocumented right no mm-hmm. one here gave them you know permission to land and but they showed up um and now white people who have stolen this land drew the borders which is so ironic and let and keep, are keeping other people out we're we're drawing borders around land that's stolen mm. uh, that just is so ironic and and hypocritical mm-hmm um, that 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 we should uh, not do that, and I better stop talking about this because we've got <laughs> other stuff to talk about. It's all good, but all but good. that's my question: is why weren't more of us there? Maybe they didn't know about it. Maybe they didn't hear about it. Maybe uh, I don't know. But we should be better at organizing this. I saw at least thirty of my Jewish friends that I know personally, at and I was so happy to see them. Uh, one one rabbi that I really respect, Ralph Claudia, um, she's at Temple. Uh, Beth Zion in Brookline. I she's an amazing rabbi, and I was so happy to see her there. I felt uh, just so safe with her there. It's it, and I think we could be there as well. Mm. And we should be there. Like part of my job, like now that I finally have a calling in my singles ward, I'm like the interfaith specialist. Mm-hmm. So knowing when this stuff is happening is supposed to be my job, and. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how I'm supposed to find out about this stuff, but this is going to be something I certainly make more of a priority because you're right. We need we need to be at these events mm. and we need to be showing solidarity with our brothers and sisters, especially ones who have histories similar to ours. Right. With regard to. And I have to say, we as Latter-day Saints, with the exception of a few people in Germany, didn't resist. And and uh, cooperated. Um, I'm like, oh. Uh, you know about our history uh, in in Germany? No. Oh yeah. Um, there was one young man, um, Helmut Hübner is his name, and he resisted. Um, he pamphleted and said like this is awful, um, and he was executed by the Nazis um, and actually excommunicated by his local leaders. Wow. Because he resisted the Nazis. Um, 
and it turns out that they that the Salt Lake unexcommunicated him afterward, uh, and so now he's a hero. But at the time, he uh, uh, he wasn't. But but by and large, a lot of people in in Germany at the time who were members of the church basically looked to the article of faith that says. Um, we believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates in honoring, obeying, and sustaining the law, and said, well, they're in charge. It's the law. I'm like, there are exceptions to that. Even Dallin mm-hmm. Oaks has said in, 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 in certain grave situations, it, you have to obey God's law and not man's. Mm. Well, anyway, that's enough. Maybe uh, well, we should move on. <laughs> Okay, that's totally fine. Like, this is actually a good segue into uh, something else I wanted to follow up on from last week. Yeah. Uh, last week on the prayer roll, I put the Pace in Utah Temple because they banned one brother, Tekulve uh, Jackson Van, or sorry, ban isn't the right word. They released him from his calling as a temple ordinance worker. Mm-hmm. But within 24 hours, they did a total about face. Uh, the temple presidency was contacted. Um, Tekulve's story got spread, you know, all over social media. And uh, the temple reinstated him as an ordinance worker as, um, you know, as his story, you know, spread and he received an outpouring of love. He's grateful to be back at the temple and uh, he's received a lot of support from the members of the church. And I just want to give a quick kudos to Tekulvi for speaking out and a kudos to the Payson Temple for listening and correcting this error. So temple grooming standards are a relatively small thing, but establishing a pattern of relatively small and positive changes could be, you know, the push and the momentum we need to make more small changes and hopefully bigger ones eventually. Mm -hmm. So I just really liked seeing how members of the church mobilized around to Colby and, you know, got this, got this, got this change made. Yeah. Because there's no reason a person with, with uh, locks should be put out of the temple simply because other people red white people feel uncomfortable with his hair yeah i mean yeah there that speaks to the need for more training both in our uh among our members and among our leaders certainly um because things like this happen and the world is watching like so many investigators are going to hear about this story and we don't want to be in the news. Uh, it, the re- the news part isn't the reason not to do the wrong thing. The reason not to do the wrong thing is because it's wrong and it actually uh, hurts a person. And I do want to say that before this story really like spread on social media, the temple had already reinstated Brother Jackson Van. Yeah. So like, yeah, it had. I mean, it definitely did its part in getting awareness spread, mm-hmm. but also just the fact that. Tekovi alone, him having the conversation, him bringing it up, was enough to at least get the temple to look into his release and eventual right. reinstatement. Right. So, you know, that was a good thing. And um, something else I wanted to highlight there was that this past weekend was the 4th of July, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a good time to talk about the meaning of patriotism and loyalty and revisit, revisit what those words mean. And I'll tell you why. So, Tekovi and I were kind of taking a task this past weekend, uh, primarily because of our decision to remain active in the church despite what happened oh. to Tekovi. And yeah. that is probably one of the most annoying conversations I've had this weekend, is just a series of primarily, well, they happen to all be 
white people, and maybe some of them were ex-Mormon. I don't know how many of them were ex-Mormon. But a lot of them simply saying something along the lines of, why are you part of this church that treats you this way? You know, And personally, I'm tired of explaining myself to people. Um, primarily because it's not my responsibility to do so. Like just because like I'm a grown man, I make my own decisions with regard to my faith. And if I want to be part of this church, you know, that's, that's my business. But if you want to know why that's information you can get for yourself, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like my membership and my decision to remain a member of the church is a function of my testimony and is a function is a function of my testimony and a function of my knowledge of history and my ability to stay in the church. So primarily a function of my testimony and my mental and spiritual health. That is what my decision to stay in the church is a result of. So if you want to understand that, you don't actually need to talk to me about that. You can pretty much deduce based on what Mormon theology is, based on what the history of the church is, and based on a healthy state of mind, why I would remain a member of the church. You don't need to imply with that question that black people who decide to remain members of the church in spite of the church's questionable history with regard to black members are stupid. Yeah, there's a lot of actual racist assumptions in in the comments of these people oh, who are absolutely. basically saying I know better than you what's yes, best for you. That is the one. That is the one. That is the most common problem. That is the most common sentiment that has been expressed to me and to Tacovi mm-hmm. over the past week mm-hmm. is that there are people who are not black, people who are not Mormon, people who are not either who are supposing that they know my situation better than I do. They are supposing that they know what is good for me better than I do. And as you said, it is a very racist thing to imply that you know better than a black person how they should fight their own oppression. If you're not black, if you're not Mormon, if you don't understand that intersection, you don't get to say anything. Right, like That right. is the equivalent of an anti-vaxxer assuming they know better than a doctor what is good for them. You <laughs> know what I'm saying? Like, that's just, Ooh. it's dumb. It is so dumb. And I don't know what... What it is, I is mean, they feel I entitled. It it's, they, yeah, it's They feel entitled to say their opinion um, whenever they want. Mm-hmm. And they feel entitled even with that. It's, it's a function of privilege. Like, they are in a space where they are used to saying what what comes to their mind and they're used to what they say being important yeah you know and uh and and, and, and you know mattering. queer people in the church get this too it's almost i i am not i don't want to say it's the same thing but it's almost the same thing um i don't get this a lot because i think a lot of the people who hear of my story know that i know what i'm doing and yeah. they know that my testimony is is solid and the and that i'm in my, but I know other queer people in the church who get hammered from ex-Mormons who say, you've got to leave the church. You've all got to leave the church. If you mm-hmm. don't, you're, you're mm-hmm. supporting uh, uh, you know, a suicidal environment and you're like betraying. Like, but here's, here's the, real, the real where it comes down to is who bears the cost of the decision? Like, mm-hmm. like if, if, if I tell you what to do, and you're the one that bears the cost of getting it right or not, you you actually should be in charge of making the decision because it, because you you bear the cost. Whether, whether you, I mean, whether I like it or not, maybe it is the wrong decision, but the point is, whatever decision you decide, if you bear the cost for, for whatever it is, then you should be the one that makes that decision. Right. And it's the same thing for queer people. Like, you don't get to tell me what to do when I'm the one who has to to bear it, either mm-hmm. either way, 
And for queer people, there's there's costs and sacrifices on all sides. Mm-hmm. Like we have to, it's not choosing what's you know what's completely good. We have to choose between a whole bunch of things, none of which are ideal, and we make that choice. And for a straight ex Mormon to come and tell me, Derek, you need to leave the church, which they don't really, they know me, they know me well enough not yeah. to do that. You yeah. Know? But I know other gay members of the church who get that a lot. And I'm like, that is that is really homophobic. They think that they're pro gay, but mm-hmm. it's actually homophobic because it's it's taking the decision making out of the hands of the person who has to bear the cost. Yep. It's 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 like that doesn't make any sense. And it's basically Yeah. It's it's also it, there's also this idea of like paternalistic, like you're just a dumb gay person. You don't yep. know better. Mm-hmm. I know better. Yeah. And Straight people for centuries, for millennia, have been telling us what's best for us, and that is the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. Whether it's telling us to, you know, become straight or telling us to leave the church, on one level, it's the same thing. Straight people telling us what to do yeah. with our lives that we that they don't have to bear the cost if if they get it wrong. They don't have to bear the cost, and uh, so that's uh, that's uh, they yeah. And Farther, so I, they haven't spent the amount of time in a gay body as. You know, as you have. Right. Like, my uh, thing is, yeah. if you don't spend, like, aside from this just not being mm-hmm. your lane or your place, how long have you spent in a black body? Yeah. How long have you spent being a member of the church? How long have you spent being in a black body in the Mormon church? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. why would you think that you are better equipped to make this decision than me? Like, that yeah. just blows my mind, and, and they, it's so infuriating. And they think of it with this all-or-nothing thinking, which is uh, like you're either all in, the, all in or all out, or it's all good or it's all bad. Yeah. And they don't realize how marginalized people have to very skillfully navigate and negotiate these situations, which, which sometimes takes a very tight balance, mm-hmm. which if you just have this outline of, oh, church bad for gays or church bad for blacks, you miss the actual... Uh, skillful navigation that is essential to to, that we know because we've been doing this our whole lives or in my case since I joined the church Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah it's it's uh, and and here's another thing is there are there are gay men in the church who who choose to marry women yeah and there there are gay women in the church who choose to marry men and I don't I don't go out and publicly condemn them for the exact same reason. I, I do not at all um, encourage people to do that. If people ask for my advice, I'm going to tell them. But it's not my place to, to tell this this gay man, I know better than you, even though I do. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but, but, but it goes back to my point is, okay, fine. If he marries a woman, he's going he's gonna to bear that cost. Mm-hmm. He is going to have to, to deal with it. I don't have to deal with his, his mistake if it's a mistake. Yeah. He's the one that's taking on the responsibility of that decision. And if he asks for my opinion, I can tell him. But I'm not going to go out and, and condemn another queer person uh, the way a lot of other people do. Mm. Precisely because, okay, I get it. You you, you bear the cost for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so they, they, they're the ones that have to to deal with it if they're wrong and many of them end up divorcing and realizing that they made a mistake yeah um and so that's that's something we have to keep in in mind yeah yeah so that's just one side of where this 
me and Takovi have been taking task, taking a task. We've been taking a task by people outside of the church, especially ex-Mormons, white ex-Mormons. And then we've also been taking a task by uh-huh. people, by true blue Mormons, you know, yeah. as they are traditionally called. Mm-hmm. People who are more of the opinion that you should just fall in line, you should not complain, and that what the church does, whatever they enforce, as far as their policies or doctrines, it's all right. You know what yeah. I'm saying? So there's the there's the criticism we've got from that side of the spectrum as well. And these are people who yeah. are just saying, why are you critical of the church? Why? How can you say that you're a good member of the church or a good active temple recommend holding member of the church if you are so critical of it? Mm-hmm. And that's when our loyalty gets called into question just because we are critical. And I think both you and I know that just because a person is critical of an institution doesn't mean they're not loyal to it or they, right. that they don't love right. it. You know, Some of the most loyal people to institutions have been critical of it. Like you look at our history, the people who have been super critical of the American institution, Ooh, yeah. the Martin Luther Kings, mm-hmm. the Malcolm X's, mm-hmm. the Rosa Parks's, the Medgar Evers's, the Muhammad Ali's, the Jackie Robinson's. These are people who have done a lot for the advancement right. of America as a society, even though they were vocally critical of it. And that's not a, that's simply just not a good argument to, arg- to say that these people are less loyal simply because they are critical. So that is also a conversation we have to have, and also another reason I was thinking about this particular Fourth of July. Sorry, go Yo, ahead. Ooh, I have an idea. Yes, sir. The next time one of these ex-Mormon uh, characters comes along and says, "Well, you know, I'm this is I know what's best for black people." What I'm going to ask them is, back when you were Mormon, what did you do for black people? Ooh, get him, Derek. Because if 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 they didn't do anything, if they didn't speak up back when they were Mormon, you don't get to say nothing. You don't get to say anything now when it's for real. on your when it's quote on your side and it, it helps your case or whatever. You want to just attack the church. So what this does is it proves that they're not actually caring about black people. They're caring about their ego and yeah. their pride in like yeah. I know that I'm not in a racist organization, mm-hmm. which that shouldn't even be your first for real priority. That, your first priority racism. is like the safety, well-being, and security of the people that you are claiming to, to advocate for. For real. And so, yeah, and the same thing with the, uh, with the anti-gay uh, uh, people who, who are ex-Mormon and tell me they know. I'm going to ask them, like, back when you were one of these Mormons, what did you do for my people? If you didn't do anything, why should I then? Why should I listen to you now? For real. Because leaving the church isn't doing anything for me. Like, yeah. I'm still here. I still got to bear the cost of this decision that I'm making. Mm-hmm. So you leaving the church doesn't do anything to me. It only alleviates your conscience or your ego or right. your sense of embarrassment because you couldn't stand to be part of a homophobic organization. Good for you, but what does that do for me? Right, and, it, and part of the other thing is because many of us who are LGBT don't have parents who are LGBT, we yeah. are very vulnerable. Yeah. And we need allies in the church maybe i mean i don't particularly need allies the same way but a lot of young uh people when they when they realize that they're lgbtq they're in a very vulnerable place and if they have even one person in the church who's an ally and 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 protects them and that they can go to it is a significant uh, reduction in suicidality and other problematic yeah. things. Yeah. And that's why we can't have a lot of people say, well, all the allies should leave and all the gay people should leave. I'm like, that, 
we can't stop straight Mormons from no. having gay kids. No. Like, if you could figure out, I it's mean. It's not a solution. There's a, like, theoretically, if all the black people in the church left, well, then then you don't have to worry about black people being raised except in an adoption. Mm-hmm. But but oh. we don't have that. So what? Another conversation for another day. Oh yeah. Yeah. But but yeah, it's not the same. We're not an ethnic minority. We are born to people who profoundly misunderstand us. Yeah. In a, in a way that's that probably uh, is only parallel paralleled by disability, mm. um, or or faith transition, right? Because. Mm-hmm. And we're born to people who profoundly misunderstand us. And if there's no allies, that is that is a disaster. Yeah. And so all these people who now I get if someone needs to leave the church for their own mental health. Yes. That's different. But Absolutely. if they're leaving on behalf of me and they're and they could stay in the church, you're not actually helping me. You are at shooting all. yourself in the foot, actually. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. If I wanted to be part of a church that was completely arrived on LGBT issues, I would have stayed part of the Episcopal Church, mm-hmm. which isn't completely, completely arrived, but it's almost all the way there. Mm-hmm. Um, the Episcopal Church has um, gay marriage, gay clergy, um, partnered clergy can be, uh, you know, there's, it's, uh, and then there's room for trans people to be ordained. It's, it's on paper almost where it needs to be. Look, I am not an idiot. If I needed that and I wanted that, I would have stayed part of the Episcopal Church. Yeah. Not to say anything bad about the Episcopal Church. I love all my Episcopalian friends, but that's not where I am. And for these people who left left the uh, uh, left the LDS Church to like tell me what to do with my life when mm. I knowingly, as a convert, joined three years, three and a half years ago, mm-hmm. knowing exactly what was going on knowing that the Lord put me in this place and the Lord is my foundation. Yep. I'm not afraid of anyone. Mm-hmm. And and they, they these random I- people on the internet are like <laughs> you need to leave the church. I mean, that's their answer to everything. For real. Like And what bugs me is they leave the church. But they don't leave a lot of the psychology behind that they absorb through the culture. This yes. black and white thinking, this yes. all or nothing thinking, yes. this hero worship. You mm-hmm. won't believe how many people who uh, who have worshiped the g- general authorities and then left the church. Now worship, worship some John ex, or somebody some like ex Mormon leader, and yeah. then they get devastated when those people don't live up to perfection. All yes. these ex Mormon celebrities, you know, some of them are doing good work, but all of them are going to have major, major flaws and yeah. major things that they get wrong. And people are going to be devastated if they lean. Oh, and the other thing is this whole evangelistic spirit. They brought that with them. Yep. Like they go out. Well, they used to go out with the Book of Mormon and say, if you just read this, you're going to become a Mormon. And then there's other things now that if they say, well, if you just read this, you're going to be an ex-Mormon. I'm like, I read those things before I joined the church. Yeah. They just have this very simple. I shouldn't portray ex-Mormons so broadly because there are a lot of ex-Mormons that, that are nuanced and healthy and stuff. But there's a there's a significant number of ones that probably are the ones that make the most noise. Because the ones that are doing fine, they don't need to really make a lot of noise. They're right. just they're just gonna get on with their life. And and, and I'm not really blaming the ex Mormons. Mm. I'm not saying there's something wrong with them. What I'm saying is that they have they're not actually ex Mormon enough because right. they've taken all the the Mormon psychology that they were raised with and just funneled it in a different direction. Um, and they and they haven't actually done a lot of the work of deconstructing all of the all of this f- framework mm. that they've had about 
black and white thinking, evangelistic thinking, um, superiority in their thinking. Like, you know, Mormons think they know everything, and the ex-Mormons, they think they know everything. I mean, like, wow. So maybe I shouldn't speak so harshly about ex-Mormons. but <laughs> It's all good. I'm actually kind of on their side. I want them to thrive and, yeah. and to, to have some well-being and, and to yeah. not get caught up in patterns of thinking that didn't serve them well when they were members, and mm -hmm. now they, they, they just have diverted to a different direction. Yeah, I feel that. Thanks for sharing. So this is all to say that, um, or sorry, this is not all to say, but these things, this experience that Tokovi and I had this past week, especially with regard to our being critical of the church or not being critical enough, uh, this made me think a lot about America. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think it's a coincidence that this week there are two other stories that made me think about the necessity of being critical of America. One of those stories was Colin Kaepernick and Nike. I don't know if you heard about this, but I Nike. Did. Okay. So Nike released yep. or almost released a shoe for the 4th of July. There was nothing special about this shoe except that on the heel was printed the uh, Betsy Ross flag, the one with the 13 stars in a circle, the 13 yep. colonies flag. Yep. So that was going to be on the shoe. And uh, Colin Kaepernick came out and he was like, we actually need to pull this shoe for a couple of reasons. Two reasons he cited was, one, that flag was made and it existed at a time where slavery was abounding in America. Like it didn't represent, mm -hmm. though it represented the 13 colonies, it, certain di it certainly didn't represent the enslaved Africans who were also in right. those colonies who didn't have the same rights that that flag uh, professed mm -hmm. to give to everybody. And the second thing was that the Betsy Ross 13 colonies flag is used by some white supremacist groups. Yep. So that is a that is another thing. Now that isn't as widely known, which is why there was a lot of pushback on Kaepernick and his reasoning. But fact remains, some people have co-opted the Bessie Ross flag yeah. as a white supremacist symbol. Yeah, I wanted to say a couple things. First of all, back in um, 1776, slavery was legal in all 13 colonies. Yeah. Not just the South, it was legal in all of them. And, and so that needs to be named. Two, July 4th, 1776, did not free all of us. Right. Right? Um, Independence Day for who? Yeah, it didn't free all of us. There was, there was people that left unfreed. And three, um, the, what was I going to say? Oh. oh, the flag. So the flag represents a promise to black people that has not been kept. Mm-hmm. Even even the current flag. That, that's actually the next point I wanted to make. Yeah, um, represents a promise and an ideal that has not been kept. This mm -hmm. promise has not been kept for, for people of color in this country. And yes. that needs to be named. All of the people who love the flag, sure, you can love the flag, but you need to know that your, your perspective isn't the only one. And yes. not everyone else is going to be able to have the privilege that you have of, of being able to see the flag in that. Uh, light yeah and this is where I would this is the one maybe two challenges I have against uh, Colin Kaepernick's logic for why he wanted the thing pulled like the simplest argument I can think of is first of all printing the flag on anything is already against flag code if you want to talk about respecting the flag <laughs> we're not supposed to eat off of flag printed plates we're not supposed to use these flag napkins decorate anything with the flag much less clothing like this is all not while not against the law it's certainly against flag code mm -hmm. And, you know, if we want to talk about respecting the flag, this shouldn't have happened in the first place. But the yeah. thing I wanted to talk about that you just brought up was that 
the flag that we have now flies over a nation and flied over a nation where Jim Crow segregation was legal. It flies over a nation where mass incarceration is still a thing. Mm -hmm. It flies over a nation on the 4th of July where we still have so many uh, immigrants incarcerated or they're like being detained. And it flies over a nation where there are several black men who are still in jail over marijuana possession charges. They are serving extended sentences for that. So... I would I would say not just the Betsy Ross flag. I would say any flag, any version of the American flag is not a good look for black people. It's not a good look for yeah. any company who is trying to brand American ideals because those ideals still have not been extended to us in equal measure as, mm-hmm. you know, our white mm-hmm. counterparts. So I wouldn't just say the Betsy Ross flag because that makes it seem like there's something uniquely wrong with the right. Betsy Ross flag right. or with Betsy Ross herself. And right. I don't want to say that. I'm not comfortable saying that being that Betsy Ross was a Quaker and Quakers were known for their abolitionist sensibilities. But I do want to just say the American flag itself mm-hmm. because it is a symbol for things that have not been brought to pass for black people in America. I would not put it yeah. on anything. You know, I would not put it on anything representing my brand. And even white supremacists today, they ironically fly the American flag beside the Confederate flag. Like, did they not see that contradiction? <laughs> like, to them, the American flag and the Confederate flag are symbols of white supremacy. They are symbols of American exceptionalism. They are yeah. symbols of white America ideals. And that is a problem. And until that changes, I wouldn't want to see the flag on anything. Yeah, and it's and it's tough because I I respect the the there's room for not all black people are going to have the same opinions and the same perspectives. Certainly. And so there's room for a, a variety of of perspectives on this. And I if I remember it right, the 1963 March on Washington, they actually had the uh they sang the Star-Spangled Banner and they said the pledge of allegiance to the US flag. Even though there's a whole bunch of problems, right? Yes. And even though the Star-Spangled Banner was written by a slave owner, mm-hmm. um, Francis Scott Key, and e- even despite that, at their particular way of navigating it, they felt that this was the strategic thing to do, right? And so there's going to be different strategies uh, that different people use. And uh, I just want to ask you real quick. Uh, I know I already know your answer. Okay. <laughs> but, okay, pretend it's 1939. Uh, okay. And uh, you are you're the like the Secretary of State in the U.S. Okay. And a ship full of 900 Jews. Yeah. Comes from Germany to the U.S. in 1939. Okay. Would you let them stay in the U.S.? Absolutely. Just 900 of them. Take all of them. Yeah. Well, this actually happened. Yeah. This is the ship, the St. Louis, that came here with 900 Jewish passengers trying to get out of Germany, and guess what we did? We sent them back. We sent them back. Mm. Um, and a lot of people don't know about the St. Louis. I don't think it's really uh, taught. Now, Now our Jewish friends, they know about the St. Louis. Yes. But so this, uh, this ship, they were, they, they, uh, and they had legal visas to leave Germany, which I, I'm not sure how they got. Well, uh, at that point, Germany wanted all the Jews to leave. And they first went to Cuba. Then they went to the U.S. And they were, rege- they were rejected by Cuba. Then they were rejected by the U.S. Then they were rejected by Canada. They went back to Europe. Uh, many of them ended up in the U.K., but many of them also ended up in Belgium, France, and the Netherlands, which is not the right place to be when those countries are about to be taken over by Germany. And yeah. uh, a number of them did perish. Uh, and we could have saved them. We could have saved more of them. And I'm like, 
obviously what's going on on the border is a very different situation now it's the details are gonna be very different mm -hmm. so i'm not saying it's exactly the same but there's a sense in which did we learn nothing from this <laughs> from this you know from this like we as a country turned back people who were fleeing certain death mm -hmm. and did we learn from that? I mean, there's people facing certain death for different reasons and different causes who are trying to come to this country now. Yeah. And, and I'm like, there's people who are like, no, we don't, we don't want you. I mean, I just don't understand that. No, neither do I. Like it's ridiculous. And that brings me to, to the second thing. Um, I don't know how often you're on Twitter, Derek, but do you know what was trending on Twitter on July 4th? Not my aerial. Dude! Yep. Not my aerial and hashtag colored. Like these are the things that were tweet that were trending on the 4th of July. Like what else? Oops. What other evidence do you need that America deserves the criticism that we currently get? Like on the 4th of July, we are complaining about the fact that a fictional universe, a little girl in a fictional universe is being portrayed by a black woman. Like, this is a problem. Like, it yeah. is such a problem. And, oh, and there's, there's just so many places I could go with this. But, but the thing that just strikes me now is, like, people are like, there, there's certain racists that are like, oh, I'm racist. They'll, they'll, they'll actually admit it. But a lot of them are like, no, I'm colorblind, and I don't see color. They sure saw color right yeah, here. they did. And, and b these colorblind racists, they say, well, we're, we as a society – we're, we're colorblind, and if you work hard enough, you can you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Uh, and here we have an actress who literally yeah. did that, literally and then the that. racists are saying, nope, not like that. Yeah. And then same with, with AOC. She mm -hmm. literally is a, a woman of color who went from a bartender, from being a bartender, to, uh, to being a representative mm -hmm. in, in the U.S. Congress. And people are like, not like that. I mean, they say pull yourself up by, you know, people of color. They can just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. The American dream, and by the way. And she did that. She mm -hmm. did that. And they're like, no, not like that. Yes. Like, we can't see you being the center or being the default or being mainstream in any way. Not even in a fictional universe. Right. you see that. Right. So, like. Yeah. And it's not like, uh, I mean, there's just as many actual existing mermaids that are black <laughs> as there are mermaids that are white i mean it's <laughs> yeah like why is this uh, why is this a hill you want to die on at all like this is this is let's just be clear this is not about this is not about any kind of loyalty or fidelity to source material like mm -hmm. let's remember that sylvester stallone released the movie rocky in the 70s a movie where a white man comes out on on top in a sport heavily dominated by blacks and latinos and where he takes out a very clearly caricatured version of Muhammad Ali, who is only true to him until his politics. The very thing that yeah. exonerated him and has extolled him over the course of the last, you know, 40 years or however long it's been. Like, this is not about loyalty to source material at all. Like, especially when you can create a fictional universe like the one in Rocky. That would never, ever happen. Right. And that was clearly a fantasy. That was clearly a white mm -hmm. fantasy. So mm -hmm. let's just call this what it is. We've had... Um, uh, do you follow Ali Henny by chance? I do. Okay. She I said do. something this morning that I really liked. She said, whiteness sees representation as erasure, 
because whiteness has attempted to erase others. Whiteness sees empowerment as oppression because it has used power to oppress others. Now, the fact that we live in a country that is so predicated on white supremacy that even in fictional worlds, black people can't be the center of narratives without white people freaking out, and further, that they felt comfortable expressing this much on a holiday where we're supposed to celebrate ideals that would condemn white supremacy is exactly why I'm not mad at anyone who criticizes America. Like, on the 4th, we had thousands of migrants in in detention centers and Mm -hmm. white people freaking out about a black girl playing Ariel and we black men serving long sentences in jail for possession of marijuana. Like, we deserve every bit of this criticism we're getting currently. And we need criticism because we should should be better than this. I would just implore everybody, don't be critical of the critics out there because they just might be more loyal. They just might be more patriotic than the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, there's those are some real powerful words there. I really, yeah, Ali Henny. And there's the there's another sense in which yes, we should be better, but there's also a sense in which the system was designed this way. It's not like it was designed to be perfect, and then yeah. we, it's broken now, and it's right. somehow accidentally not not going according to plan. Yes, like we have white supremacy baked into every institution in this country. Um, uh, and that's something that just doesn't magically go away. We have to Correct. think about Correct. the system was designed for mass incarceration. Um, and someone chose that. Yeah. And it's not like, like it just accidentally happened somehow. Um, and it's so, yeah, we have to sort of name name that and hold hold that tension with what our ideals should be. Yes, sir. And there's a there's a it's real. It's a oh, it's a really tough thing to do if it's you're used dance. to black if you're used to black and white thinking mm-hmm. look at thomas jefferson who who um enslaved other people including his own children yeah and then with the other hand he signed you know he wrote the the declaration mm-hmm. of independence that says all men are created equal you see that exhibit in the uh african-american his the Namak, the national. Yes. Okay. I said I did. It's I the did. first thing you see actually when you enter the exhibit, like enter the exhibit from the bottom floor, is a picture of one hand with a shackle on it and the other hand with a pen that yep. wrote the Declaration of Independence. It's a thing for Thomas Jefferson, uh, showing just the duplicity of the mind that simultaneously enslaved people, but with the other hand signed a document that freed people. Yeah, and so much of our culture, going back to Disney, Disney makes things easy, like everyone is either good or bad. Yeah, but in in the real world, no one's completely all good and no one's completely all bad, mm-hmm. and that is so hard for you, for me to even me to admit. Mm. Well, anyway, that's the last piece of news I had. Derek, do you have anything before we move to come follow me? Nope, that's it. Perfect. Then let's move to come follow me. I just have two things for this is Acts chapter six through nine, by the way, just as a reminder, every lesson that we do and that we cover is going to be for the following week, not for this week, just as a way for you guys to have some additional commentary on the lesson to get ready for the following lesson. So this is Acts chapter six through nine that we're going, that we're going over. Now, Acts chapter 6, I just want to talk about the first verse that hit my my ear funny. And uh, this is the verse that says, I believe this is Acts 6 verse 2. Don't have my scriptures in front of me. I just quoted the thing. It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. You know what? I should, this is, this is out of context. I probably should just read this as it is in the, uh, in the thingy. Acts chapter 6. 
I'll edit this dead space out. Okay, so for context sake, what the apostles are doing here is they realize that there's more work that they can handle on their own. And uh, the primary uh, complaint that the, uh, that the Grecians had against the Hebrews was because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. That's what it says in verse 1. Then in verse 2, seeing that they need help or seeing that they can't do everything on their, on their own, the twelve called the multitude of the disciples and said unto them, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So for me, it's hard to not read a little bit of condescension into this because, you know, the implication kind of seems to be here that because the apostles are who they are, doing something like waiting tables is beneath them. And by the way, the word that they use in the newer translation is wait tables. They don't use the word serve tables in the newer translations. They use the word wait. So that probably contributes to the ability to read some condescension or some something that implies something lower about serving tables. But uh, what I found interesting was that in the next verses, we have verse 3 and 4, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom ye may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, the Greek translation of the word ministry and serve are actually the same word. I didn't know that uh, until this past week. So that implies that there is nothing qualitatively different about serving tables and the ministry of the word of God. That is just the responsibility of those who are called to be apostles. Their primary responsibility is the ministry of the word of God, whereas the apostles are in essence calling who are functionally deacons to, uh, to you know, serve these tables. Like there's nothing less noble about the work of taking care of the temporal needs of the saints. In fact, both are important aspects of the work. So just what I pulled out of this personally for me is no matter what calling you have in the church, qualitatively, they all matter the same because they're all necessary. But um, the apostles were just letting us know here, um, I feel, at least in this translation, that they can't do the work of both ministering the word of God and serving the temporal needs of the people without some help, which is why they called the seven. Something else I want to point out uh, that is special about this is that Stephen and Philip are among the seven who were called. And if you know about Stephen, uh, we actually learn about his exploits in this, uh, in this very grouping of chapters. Uh, I think Acts chapter 7 is where we learn a little bit more about his story. Uh, he's, Stephen is one of the table servers they call, but he seems to be just as spiritually gifted uh, as the apostles. And the fact that we have his words and his exploits and not the words and exploits of other of the original 12 probably ought to tell us something. I mean, look at that description mm -hmm. they give to Stephen. He is a man full of the Holy Ghost, and he's clearly just as good of a preacher, if not a better preacher, than some of the original members of the 12. Right. So, like, we can all, everybody who is in the church and called to any degree or any place in the ministry, we can all be full of the Holy Ghost as Stephen was. We can all be as good of a teacher, as good of a preacher as Stephen was. We can work mighty miracles and we can preach with power mm -hmm. as Stephen did mm -hmm. shortly before his death. It doesn't matter where we are or what kind of calling we have. We can all do, in essence, what the apostles are do doing currently. It's just that our current responsibility is different than theirs. Right. I got one more thing I want to say about that, but do you have any... Uh... I have something I want to say about that. Yeah, because, okay. Because, um, yeah, you, you really brought up a lot of good points there, 
one thing to notice is this sort of what's going on here and how the what I find interesting is how the apostles react to criticism because this is oh, one of yeah. the earliest places that we have um, the 12 together and at this point we don't have any Gentiles in the church yet it's Greek speaking uh, Jews and uh-huh. then Hebrew speaking Jews or Aramaic um, and the Greek-speaking Jews were the ones that were left out of the daily distribution of food. And so what they did is, um, the Greek word here is gongosmos, which means a, a, a grumbling or a, a complaining. Okay. It's this, it's this complaint in, in verse 1 that, that broke out. And this word is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, which is the 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 text which all of the authors of the New Testament would have known. Okay. Um, if they were working in uh, Greek and if they're quoting it in Greek, they typically use the the Septuagint translation. But anyway, so this has a very negative. This is the same word that's used for the grumbling of the Israelites in the wilderness when they okay. when they when they're complaining and which is condemned um, and stigmatized in the. Um, in numbers, but anyway, so this this grumbling, this gongos must broke out because their widows were being neglected. And what I love is what the uh, and this is the English Standard Version here. It says uh, they didn't say, "Oh no, how dare you you criticize us?" Or they didn't say, "Oh no, like you can't do that. We know what we're doing." Or, "Oh no, everything's right. There's no problem." What they said is, they said. Pick from among you seven men. And if you look at the names of all these seven men, they're all Greek names. Mm. So what it looks like to me is they lifted up people from the relevant population to take a leadership role in fixing the problem. They didn't say there was no problem. And they didn't say we know how to fix this problem. They said we're going to delegate. We're not going to we're not going to claim all of the authority. We're going to delegate some of this authority to you. And now we're going to let you be in charge of of this particular need. Um and what they what they said pleased the whole gathering. So this solved the problem. Mm. Um and then these the apostles laid their hands and prayed on these seven men. And I think that's just a very, very beautiful uh, way of highlighting yeah. the role of um, complaint and criticism in the church. It's not mm-hmm. done out of a negative spirit. It's right. done out of a sense of, look, we know that you are here doing the Lord's work. And there's this piece that you can't see or you didn't understand or you don't you don't know what's going on. The apostolic thing to do is to say, okay— People who know, the people who are, I, th- I forgot who, I, who it was that said this, but it's the people that are closest to the pain that need to be the closest to the power. Mm. And that's exactly what the apostles did. They lifted up these, uh, these seven men, and, and from then on, there appears to be no problem. Mm-hmm. And not only did they do that, but it blessed others because we have Stephen and Philip in, um, in the next chapters that we, we'll get to. Yes, and I want to talk about Philip next, actually, because uh, Philip, my guy, um, this story of Philip just speaks so much to me about how the Spirit works, particularly in missionary work mm-hmm. or in any other kind of work. But let me just go over... This story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. It's one of my favorite illustrations for this stuff. Now, first of all, 
God only gave Philip one step at a time. He simply told Philip, head toward a path that leads to the desert. And that's all Philip gets. So presumably Philip just gets up and he gets on his merry old way without an explanation of why he's doing it. He just does it. Now on his way, he sees the eunuch's chariot and the spirit is like, go join yourself to that chariot. And Philip presumably is just like, all right, I'm here. No explanation needed or anything like that. He just goes and does it. So then what happens next is super interesting to me. Philip joins himself to this chariot, and then he hears the eunuch reading from Isaiah. And from mm-hmm. there, Philip knows exactly what to do. Like, Philip was born for this moment, pretty much. He, know, he was prepared for this moment. Like, his whole ministry is basically, you know, you know, now obviously taking care of the temporal needs of the saints, but also sharing the gospel. He knows exactly what to do. Because, you know, again, this is somebody reading Isaiah, so he's probably just going to be like, hey, Isaiah, right? You probably don't know what he's saying. Hardly anybody does. (laughs) Still true today. Still true today. He's like, so uh, here you're reading Isaiah. Do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch is like, how do I, how am I supposed to know if like nobody's here to guide me? And that just sets everything in motion to happen exactly the way the Lord probably intended it to happen. They talk about Isaiah. Uh, Philip explains Jesus to him. And then before you know it, they're coming across some water. And Philip's like, oh, hey. There's some water. You want to get baptized? And the baptism happens. You know, we know the rest of that story. But that is just such a cool thing that happened. Like, Mm -hmm. we don't... Often the Spirit only tells us just enough information to get us to move. It doesn't really explain why a lot. At least this is how it's been for me. In fact, I have have an experience very similar to this. Uh, While I was in college, I had... um, I took a a juvenile justice course... And a lot of people in that class were actually formerly juvenile delinquents. And, you know, this is at BYU, so that's pretty significant. But one of the uh, young men in the class was somebody that I knew personally. And I remember the teacher was saying something that he didn't take very kindly to, and he actually stormed out of the classroom. And I got a prompting to follow him. And I ignored it a little bit initially. But, you know, the prompting was very strong. So I left the classroom. I felt kind of stupid for leaving. So I went back in. And then the prompting came back again even stronger. It said, leave the classroom. So I left Mm -hmm. the classroom, and then I got a prompting that said, leave the building. And then I left the building, and I just started walking and started, like, walking fast. And then, you know, the prompting said, go to the Wilkinson Center. And, you know, that's just a big – it's like a student-centered building on BYU's campus. So I, like, go to the Wilkinson Center, and sure enough, I find this young man sitting sitting at a table in the food court. And I still don't know what I'm supposed to do at this point, but right now I know I am supposed to be sitting yeah. there and listening to this, mm-hmm. uh, listening to this young man. So just, I feel like for, there's a couple of ingredients to this story, but one thing is that I definitely want to highlight that sometimes when the spirit communicates a truth to you, it doesn't necessarily tell you why you're doing something. It just tells you to do something and it falls on you to simply follow through with the prompting. Second thing is Philip was ready for that kind Mm -hmm. of conditioning. He was ready for that kind of instruction. A lot of the apostles and what separates a lot of people who are able to do these mighty miracles is they are simply, they, they have been, they have habits of following promptings from the spirit as they receive them. And often those promptings aren't super specific and they don't necessarily tell you why, but because Philip was used to doing that kind of thing, he was put in a position to where he can make something wonderful happen. He was able to bring somebody to Christ simply as a result of his willingness to follow a simple prompting. 
And that's just the other thing I wanted to point out in this story. I, th- I think that's all I wanted to point out here. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to point out yep. a few things, too, here. Okay. So, obviously, uh, here we have someone who is part of a uh, gender and sexual minority. He is a eunuch. Yep. And that is that is real significant because a, uh, a lot of people, maybe the eunuch himself, would have been wondering, like, why, you know, do I have a place here um, in this new movement? And, and obviously he does. Yeah. Because when he asks... Philip, he says, "What what stops me from being baptized?" And, and the answer is really nothing, right? So I I just find that so beautiful that here's someone who's not going to have the same family structure as everyone else, who's not going to have the same role um, uh, as others in terms of marriage or having children, um, has a place, and not only has a place, but this is honored and memorialized in our book of. In, in the text of Acts here. Like, mm. we're going to read the this mm. story until Jesus comes back. This is how important it is. Um, and this, I think I must have said last week two things about the book of Acts. Is One is how the Spirit moves on the margins, and it's just, there's just wildness, this unpredictable wildness to the Spirit that actually uh, bubbles up from the margins. Mm. And people who are on, on the extremities, such as this eunuch here, um actually that's that's where that's where the real stuff happens Mm. and the other thing is i think i said last week is that many stories in the book of acts are about people not being satisfied with crumbs yes yeah and this is a case where neither philip nor the eunuch were satisfied with crumbs they're like no we're we we can push this further both Mm -hmm. of them wanted to keep things going and the whole thing about the eunuch you need to keep in 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 mind um the uh, the text in Deuteronomy 23, uh, chapter 23, verse 1, which basically says, um, well, I forget how, how euphemized it is in the, in the KJV, but it basically says anyone um, whose testicles have been crushed or penis has been cut off is unworthy to be part of the assembly of the Lord. And so you've got this clear, you know, people say, well, the scriptures are so clear. Well, yeah, the scriptures were absolutely clear um, in Deuteronomy about this. And I'm sure people who are, you know, otherwise well-meaning, who are very traditionalist and very, um, basically, I know the way it is, would would have called this the proclamation on the eunuch. Look, we've got this proclamation on the eunuch in Deuteronomy 23. And it says it right there. What's going on? But we what we look what we learn then is that they weren't they weren't bound by that. They they overcame that and included the eunuch, even though some people in the com- community would have said, "It's there. It's in our. It's in the proclamation on the eunuch. There's no room." But there's more room than we think there is. You know, Jesus says that his father's house has many mansions. There's, there's, mm. there's more rooms. It doesn't say that it has many closets. <laughs> many, there's many rooms, many dwelling places. And obviously the situation of a eunuch in the first century and LGBT people today are very different. I'm not saying it's exactly the same. I'm not really saying it's at all the same. What I'm saying is the same is God and God's way of moving. Okay, if God has this much care here, for someone whose family structure uh, doesn't fit the norm and someone whose sexual and gender identity doesn't fit the norm, 
why wouldn't the same God, the same Christ, the same Lord also have compassion, also have this, this way of, of, of making room where, where others might not think there is? And I'm not going to turn to it, but Isaiah 56 uh, basically is, is sort of a counter uh, to to, uh, to the to the uh, exclusion of the eunuch because there there were eunuchs who were like why are we going to be left out and Isaiah has this this word for them that says okay you're not going to be left out because those those eunuchs who who keep their covenants and keep the Sabbath you're going to have something better than children you're going to have a name and a and a monument that that will last forever. So the so what Isaiah is saying is, oh, I'm not going to fix you. He's he's saying, look, you're going to have some. It's going to be better than than what you think. You 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 feel like you're left out because you can't have children, but there's something better here than children. Um, and I think that is so precious that God thinks outside the box. We probably have this tendency of wanting to include queer people on straight terms, but however we get included. When, when when all is said and done, it may look very different. I don't know what it will look like, but it will be better than anything um, people that are more exclusionary could even imagine. So that's kind of what I had to say about Philip and the, and the eunuch. By the way, at Excellent. my baptism, at my baptism, I discussed this because A, it's a text about baptism, it's a text about look here's water what's preventing me from bap- being baptized and in my case there was nothing right I think I definitely think there is room for for queer people to thrive in the church and join the church um, these are my people it's kind of like um, yeah I, I want I want to share I want it's kind of like Lehi's family members um, you know he wanted them to partake of the fruit too he didn't want them to be left out I want my people to, to partake of this fruit as well. Mm. So that's what I had to say about Philip and the eunuch. Awesome. Thank you, man. You got a couple other things? Yeah, for, uh, I do have a few other things. Okay. Any, you had any other thoughts or questions about about that? No. no. Okay. Oh, so let's talk stuff. about two things real quick. One is um, we've got Stephen in Acts chapter 7, this brilliant sermon. And what he does in a way is call out people who are so caught up in the traditions of their fathers um, and we shouldn't take this to be to, to use it against Jews today because this was a, a, a conversation within Judaism okay Stephen was a, a Greek-speaking Jew so this isn't like someone saying Judaism is bad this is saying something that can happen in every institution every tradition every religion and every country this is just part of human nature is some of us are going to just be so caught up with the way things are that we can't see the new. So this is, there's, there isn't anything uh, unique about Judaism here. So don't, don't take this as anti-Jewish. Okay. But, but here he is saying, look, there's, there's, there's room for God to be doing something new here. And you people are stiff necked. I think the, uh, the point of that metaphor is that your neck like if you hear suffering, if you see something or, or something's off to the side, someone crying out, if you don't if you don't turn your neck to look at them, that's what it is to be stiff necked. That is you are so unwilling to deviate 
uh, and so unwilling to have compassion and curiosity about the, the something that's new or different that you're unwilling to turn your neck. And I think that's that's what stiff neck means. So he calls them stiff necked. Um, but what this does is it tells us a little bit about how we can all get over institutionalized. And the solution to this, this institutional problem, is the margins. Remember that stuff happens at the margins. And here, um, Stephen is on the margins of the of the Jewish community in the first century. And that's where the real stuff happens. And, the, and that connects with what I'm going to say real briefly about Acts chapter 9. And this is the call of, of uh, Paul, Saul, uh, who was uh, consenting to Stephen's death. Um, now uh, appears on the ro road uh, is on the road to Damascus and Jesus himself appears to Paul and says why are you persecuting me that is that is profound because like so many people in the church today Paul thought he was doing the right thing he was so bold so confident he probably um, has the cultural equivalent of what we see as a temple recommend. Like he was doing all the right things. And he was wrong. I mean, he was so overconfident in his tradition and in his institution that he he had to be called in by the Savior who appeared to him and say, look, what you're doing is the wrong thing. And this this is so easy uh, to happen. It will happen. It is so We all do it so easy to ha to get stuck in this of like oh i know what's going on i'm part of the institution i need to defend it against the people who are threatening it and i think that's really what's happening to lgbt's in our church today there's a lot of people who for all the right reasons are doing the wrong thing they are um wanting to be faithful they're wanting to be loyal they're wanting to to hold on to what they've received they're wanting to defend. They're wanting to like fight the good fight. They're wanting to, to win this culture war. But instead of having culture war, we should have culture care. I'm not the first person to say this, and I forgot who is. But the idea of a culture war comes from the scarcity mindset of there's only a limited amount of resources, and whatever I win is taken from you, and whatever you win is taken from me. But if we go from a culture war mentality to a culture care mentality, we're like, oh, look, we can be with people. We can serve them where they are. We can have some curiosity. We can focus on what works, what's effective, and, and what meets people's needs and not worry about, about it being a zero-sum game because it's not a zero-sum game. Like when you are better off, then I'm better off, even if we're different parts of the ideological or or doctrinal or, or political sp spectrum, um, this this idea of zero sum, everything I win has to be taken from you is exactly what Satan wants to do to divide the church. If we are the true church, Satan is going to be attacking us the most with the most powerful weapons. And one of the most powerful weapons Satan has is that of division. So we should uh, approach this with the spirit of, of culture care rather than culture war. Mm. Good stuff. That's all I had. Any comments, questions, or reactions? No, that is a wow. Okay. I mean, I got reactions, obviously, but <laughs> I really like that whole culture care thing. That is a great way. That is a great way to look at it. I, you know, I've I've heard that before as well. Don't know who said it, but this idea of you know 
this whole thing not being a zero-sum game is something I feel like people on the margins have to explain on a regular basis to people of privilege. Right. And, you know, that even harkens back to this whole thing with uh, Black Ariel. Like, white people feel like they're losing something by a fictional character oh. being black. I mean, there are so many white heroes that you couldn't even begin to, <laughs> to, to undo the precedent. And don't even, like, get me started on how I felt when Black Panther came out and everybody on the cover of the box looked like me. I'm just like, oh, wow, this is what y'all get to feel like all the time? Like, y'all are represent like, every main character is you. You're both, you're the heroes, you're the villains, you're the common people. Like, everybody, like, we are truly centered in mm-hmm. there. And that's a great, it's a great feeling. But just because we have something like that doesn't mean there is somehow less for you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, maybe one day we'll have a temple film that has all black people. I was thinking about that, actually, and what yeah. that would look like. This is what I think is going to happen when a black person finally appears in the temple films. Uh-huh. I really hope the first time a black person appears in the temple ordinance, it's he's not going to be Satan. <laughs> like, That's, that, would be- that is my fear. <laughs> That is my fear. My other fear is that... But Adam Satan is, has some of the coolest lines, right? right? Right, right. And I would, like, if I ever got cast in the Temple film, fingers crossed, I would want to be Satan. Like, <laughs> that is the coolest role. But this is how I, this is the only way I would do it. If Adam and Eve are both dark-skinned black folks, and I'm, you know, the light-skinned Satan, I would, I would accept that. Okay. I just don't want there to be any colorism in the right. film or anything like that. Like, right, where you're the Satan is only black person. Yes, if Satan is the only black person, I will revolt. That, like, that would I be will revolt. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, I think that's going to happen. I don't think we're too far off from, um, you know, every nation having a temple film that is representative of people that look just like them. Like, yeah. that, is, that is my hope. It started when, like, when I served my mission in Africa, like, we had all the pamphlets you know, they have a pamphlet set for, you know, they have a pamphlet set for people in Africa where, like, everybody uh-huh. in the pamphlets is a black person, yeah. a clearly African person. But they also got, you know, the multi-ethnic ones where most of the people are white. And perhaps I think in uh, other missions, like, where the majority of the people are Hispanic or Asian, they have, you know, yeah. introductory pamphlets that are representative of that. So I would yeah. I would love to see that one day. Well, I would love to see queer people represented in... in uh all of our materials that'd be um, fun as well yeah that'd be fun as well but yeah that's all i i don't have anything else for uh, come follow me if that's uh, all you get then uh, this is a good time to move to the prayer roll right i'm sad to re- well i'm actually grateful to report i don't really have anybody this week because i kind of already read them in um this whole thing that happened to Tacovi. the people i was going to put on the prayer roll originally was pretty much Everybody that came at me and Tacovi sideways for just handling this whole black Mormon experience in the way that we best felt. Yeah. And every single person that came at us sideways was a straight white person. And, more, and you know, some were ex-Mormons, some were Mormons. But, you know, I've already said what I needed to say there. Mm-hmm. Stay in your lane. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let me just ask you a question on that. What do you think the role of white allies should be in that conversation? Same as where I would see it in most other situations. Like, I saw a lot of uh, white folks doing the right thing. They simply elevated our voices. Like, uh, Papa Osler, I just want to give big ups to him for sharing uh, the story. Yeah. And, uh, you know, magnifying our voices, echoing some of the things we had to say, and then centering our story in the narrative. Uh Like, something that is, I, I feel like allies really struggle with is 
you know, not centering themselves in the narrative mm-hmm. that surrounds our story and our oppression. So one of the best things you can do, and the thing that I think is the right thing to do, is uh, simply lifting our voices and magnifying our voices. That's what Papa Osler did. Now, there was this anti-Mormon fan page uh, that actually shared our story as well, and I was on it, and some people were saying some sideways stuff, pretty much exactly what we've already gotten over. But the administrator of the page actually came to my defense. Now, he, I don't, I don't know if that person identifies as a black ally or anything like that, but what he did advocate for was for the respect of people's decisions. Like, he readily acknowledged that the majority of the people in that group are ex-Mormon. We have chosen our path. This is the path that we want to go down. And the point of this post is not to belittle James or Tocolvi for wanting to go back to the Mormon church in spite of how they were treated. It's not a way to uh, belittle the Mormon church at all. It is simply a way to acknowledge there is racism in the Mormon church Mm -hmm. and it needs to change. That is what anybody can do, Mormon or ex-Mormon. All you have to do is simply acknowledge the problem that we brought in the first place. The conversation that we started is that there is still a cultural sensitivity problem in the church. There is still a racism problem in the church. Now, when we start that conversation, the right thing to do is to continue that conversation, Mm -hmm. is to magnify that conversation. Don't start changing the conversation. Like there are some people that shared our story and changed the conversation to look at these dumb black Mormons going back to the racist church. Like that is not allyship. That is actually a very racist thing to do because, one, yeah. you're derailing the conversation that yeah. we originally started, and, two, you're supposing that you know better than us. Right. That is not a way to help black people. That is not a way to help black Mormons. So, in short, the way to do it is to continue the conversation that we started mm-hmm. and then magnify our voices in that conversation. You're more than welcome to say something, but make sure it is in that same vein of the conversation that we started. That is the way to be an ally. Yeah, and I one thing to... T- to say that we've talked about before is that racism doesn't have to be um, conscious or intentional. Yeah, and absolutely. And I'm sure I'm, I'm assuming I don't know the temple presidency, but I'm assuming there's people involved that didn't intend to be racist. You're right about that, actually. And they did not intend that. And and it's actually I think almost more dangerous when you don't intend it because if you absolutely. do intend it, you can like go up to say, "Hey, look, what you did is wrong." But people who think they're good and and want to do the right thing which I'm, I'm sure most of the people in our church are just trying to do the right thing with what they know certainly that's where this this better knowledge comes in because when we know better we do better as mm-hmm. people have said um, like the apostles did you brought, yes. up, brought that up yep. when they got a complaint brought to them they fixed it they fixed it yeah, yeah. By elevating the by voices elevating that, the voices, that involved yes. and people who know what the situation is. Brilliant insight, by the way. I'm yeah. I'm really mad at myself for not grabbing that. Yeah, um, I don't. I'm not aware of anyone else who's made that insight before. I, I've looked at a few commentaries, but but I haven't. I'm seen saying that people. in Sunday school now. I'm be like, this is what they did. That that's just an that's yeah. such an important thing. That yeah, you, I've uh, yeah. I don't know anyone who has taken this in a in the in the queer direction that way but the other thing is so my prayer role is i don't know all the details of this story but there's this um what i would call a maybe a conversion therapist or a torture therapist or reparative therapist his name uh is joseph nicolosi he was the leading um person in this camp for for many years he he died a few years ago, but for a long time he was the like go to when you wanted to stick it to your gay friends and say you could become straight. 
Um, many parents grasped onto him. And many therapists uh, uh, grasped onto him and said, "Oh, look, here's here's his research." And as it turns out now, his uh, conversion therapy is being banned in many states, uh, especially for minors, and uh, it, because it's just so dangerous, so dangerous um, uh, to to even attempt it. Uh, there's just because it'll bring up people's hopes for change and then dash them, and you're end you'll end up worse than you started off, and so. Apparently, Amazon decided to discontinue selling um, Joseph Nicolosi's book books, and a lot of people got mad about this and called it censorship. But no one's saying you can't publish or print. No, all these people who are who are conservative are like, well, let the market decide what happens. Well, here the market's deciding what happened, right? Amazon is a private company; they don't have to sell stuff if they don't want to. They can't prevent someone else from printing it and selling it, but they're like, we don't, we're not going to carry it. And um, and yes, Amazon does have a very large share of the market, but it's not like they're they're burning books and hiding them and present, pretending they don't exist. They're just saying this is too dangerous to to be there in circulation. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the what the equivalent, but imagine that there's some therapy that you could get that would turn turn your skin white and it was very painful and it didn't even work, and people were like selling this book these books and you're like, a black is beautiful, b it doesn't work, and c the process actually hurts people. Mm. Um, like, would you want that book? you know circulating around and i think we're in an era where a lot of corporations i know corporations are evil right <laughs> but a lot of corporations are now pro lgbt ish um and they're trying to do the right thing for us and they're trying to keep people safe um and this is this is something that amazon did and other people are saying look no this is they 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 retreat into this culture war cuz they feel that they're losing by the lack of these books on Amazon. When they're not losing anything, these books still exist. You can still buy them elsewhere. I don't know whether they're in print or not, but it, but they're in library. I mean, you can't delete inf – this is the age of the internet. You can't delete information anymore. So it's not like like they're erasing it doesn't exist. It's saying this is dangerous for, 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 for a teen or a parent to stumble on on Amazon and just act inadvertently buy. If you know that's what you want and you go looking for it, you can find it, but they're not going to let people – um, stumble on this and and I'm just so my prayer role is all the people who are devastated and feel personally hurt by Amazon a private company discontinuing a product that hurts my people I mean like why are you hurt by this mm -hmm. this is this I don't understand and so I, I just want to pray for them and, and hope that they can lay down their weapons in the culture war um, and uh, there's a sense in which um yeah that 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 I I'd like them to to lay down their weapons and 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 actually try to build bridges and of peace and understanding and cooperation and we'll all be a lot better and, and you know mind their own business too I'd appreciate yeah. that but <laughs> well anyway yeah all right all right well that's the uh, that's the prayer roll so um I don't have any announcements Derek you got anything nope bye until next week until next week take care Thanks. folks bye